The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com slash support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the radio program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network at republicbroadcasting.org. I'm your host for the next hour of radio transmission, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, here every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And you can work that out in your own time zone, wherever you happen to be listening. So thank you once again for tuning in for tonight's edition of the broadcast as we start a new week here on Corbett Report Radio. And first, just a couple of programming notes for people out there who are wondering. I've had quite a few emails in the last few days wondering about the podcast, the Corbett Report podcast, which has been on hiatus as I was in Kuala Lumpur and was also on hiatus this week. I did not put out an episode today, for those of you who were wondering, as I was attending to some personal matters here in Japan. But rest assured, episode 250 of the podcast, the next episode of the podcast, will be or should be released uh, if everything falls into place next Monday. So you can stay tuned for that. And of course, if you're subscribed to the RSS feeds uh, through iTunes or whatever your podcatcher of choice might be, you will be up to date and receiving the latest updates every single time there is a new podcast or interview or video or whatever you might be subscribed to. Also, I want to let people know that uh, for all of those who got their orders in for the DVD multipack over the weekend, thank you very much for your support. It's genuinely appreciated. I shipped all of the orders that came in over the weekend out over the weekend, so they should be uh, on their way right now. And the post office has assured me and continues to assure me they will be arriving before Christmas, so you still have time to get your orders in. There's one last order that I'm going to fulfill. These very discs that are in my hand I'm going to be sending off later today and that will be it for the orders that have come in so far but I want to let people know that the offer is still on if you subscribe now you will get the subscriber newsletter and you, the uh, for all of the month of uh, December that 47% discount on those DVDs will be available for subscribers and I believe it's a 23-28% something like that discount for non-subscribers so with that out of the way, let's start this week of broadcasting and let's start it out with a, a pretty important subject, I think. We're going to be talking about what's unfolding right now in Egypt. And for those of you who have been keeping an eye on the situation, you'll see that things are once again spinning off into revolution or revolutionary uh, fervor. Although I would argue that there was really no end to the revolution, or perhaps the revolution never really began in earnest in Egypt until now. Because what I've been arguing for quite some time is that although the faces may have changed on the dictatorship that's been, the oligarchy really, that's been running Egypt for, for decades now, the faces may have changed, but the game is still the same, and the game is divide and conquer and control and obfuscation and trying to get people distracted by political side issues. Well, we have finally reached another stage in the ongoing process of trying to topple that power dictatorship that is in there, in uh, in place in Egypt. And as you may have seen in the last few days, uh, demonstrations continuing to go on against President Morsi, who has recently basically declared himself a dictator and declared himself over and above the Egyptian 
lawmakers and the legislature and and everything that the Egyptians have been supposedly fighting for for the past uh, couple of years, although you wouldn't see a lot of this in the Western media, but even Voice of America, or should I say the Voice of the CIA, is covering this. And, for example, they have a story that we're going to go over tonight. Opponents blame Muslim Brotherhood for Egyptian leaders' overreach. So we're starting to see what could perhaps potentially be the actual beginning of a real revolution in Egypt where people truly do start to try to take down these power oligarchies and to stand up to the dictators that come one after another to try to come in and take over the reins of power. Well, the idea is to get those reins of power completely destroyed. It's like the Ring of Mordor. You can't put that ring on without it overtaking you. And uh, I think people are starting to finally grasp that concept. So we'll see how this plays out in Egypt. But tonight on the program, we're going to go over the Muslim Brotherhood. What is this organization? Where did it come from? How does it wield power? Who is its political bedfellows? And what is likely to come of all of this? So a pretty tall order for tonight's episode, as usual. But we're going to be here to do our best to try to fill those shoes. So tonight on the program, we'll look more at the Muslim Brotherhood. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. I can't speak tonight. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Let's continue going over the Muslim Brotherhood and what is really behind this organization, where it's coming from, and who is supporting it. But before we do that, perhaps we should get everyone up to speed on what is happening in Egypt, even as we speak right now, as protests are continuing against President Kam Pharaoh Morsi over there in Egypt, where he is basically declared himself dictator for all intents and purposes. Let's get a little bit more on what's happening right now from the voice of the CIA, I mean the voice of America, voanews.com. Opponents blame Muslim Brotherhood for Egyptian leaders' overreach. And it explains, quote, Hundreds of Egyptians continued to demonstrate for a sixth consecutive day against President Mohamed Morsi on Wednesday, as two of Egypt's highest courts said they will suspend work in protest of his decree last week, granting himself judicial immunity. Police fired tear gas into a crowd of stone-throwing protesters on a street near the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. Other demonstrators staged a sit-in at Tahrir Square, the epicenter of protests during last year's ouster of Morsi's predecessor, Hosni Mubarak. The recent ongoing protests are not just against Morsi, but also against the Muslim Brotherhood, the organization from which he came. Opposition groups are calling the Brotherhood's spiritual leader to get out of the way. It is a stunning reversal for an organization that spent decades building goodwill among Egyptians, playing the long game of combining charity work and prayer to win hearts and minds. It largely paid off. In June, its presidential candidate Morsi proved to many liberal and secular voters the better choice to lead a post-revolution society. Morsi granted himself new powers in a November 22nd decree, though, that bars the judiciary from challenging his decisions. The president says the decrees are designed to protect state institutions. End quote. So basically, the official line is that Morsi is doing this because there are some Mubarak holdouts that are kind of remnants of the judiciary there in Egypt that may stonewall the process of getting a new constitution into place and preventing the revolution from coming to its fulfillment or whatever. But of course, this is what dictators 
always inevitably say when they try to claw more power from uh, from the trough that is the state, they always say, oh, it's only temporary. It's for the people's best interest. It's only so that we can make sure that the revolution gets fulfilled. And if this sounds familiar, well, it certainly should, because at the very least, it's been used for hundreds of years. You could look back at the French Revolution and the tyranny that came out of that on the behalf of fulfilling the promise of the revolution and all of that type of woolly rhetoric that is just dictatorship in disguise. So we see President Morsi now trying to basically become a dictator. And the uh, this has played itself out in recent days with the Supreme Court of Egypt actually not being able to sit to actually even make a ruling on whether they agree or disagree with Morsi's so- so-called self-proclaimed power to place himself above the judiciary. Because there have been a lot of uh, pro-Morsi, pro-Muslim Brotherhood uh, supporters rallying around outside the Supreme Court, literally stopping them from even entering the building. So there's some very, very interesting uh, schisms taking shape here in Egypt. And it definitely seems that the Muslim Brotherhood is now driving a wedge between themselves and the, the, the rest of the revolution which is bizarre, as this article notes, because they've spent so many years and decades building themselves up as as this charitable organization that does good work and goodwill for Egyptians. And uh, after all of that work, they seem to be spending all of that hard-earned political capital on this latest move towards what looks like dictatorship. So it is a bizarre situation, and it ha- can only be seen in the greater context of what the Muslim Brotherhood is, where it comes from, and who's behind it. So uh, all of this is just cycles within cycles, and the greater cycle of the so-called Egyptian revolution, of course, not just started with the ouster of Mubarak, but then continued with the military dictators, the junta, taking over from Mubarak and basically continuing to rule from behind the scenes, as they always have, even during the Mubarak reign. And uh, then they were trying to uh, stop certain candidates from even running for president in the Egyptian elections earlier this year. And it was in that context that I appeared on Russia Today earlier this year to talk about those moves towards dictatorship and who the Muslim Brotherhood was and what some of their connections are. So I have a clip lined up of that appearance on RT earlier this year. Let's listen to that clip. Hundreds of thousands of demonstrators once again engulfing Cairo's Tahrir Square in protest against the ruling military council. The rally involves supporters from exact opposite ends of the political spectrum, with secular activists rubbing shoulders with Islamists. Uh, to discuss the latest display of civil unrest, uh, joining us here on RT, James Corbett, a political analyst with a special interest in the Arab uprisings. Good to see you. Uh, over a year since Egypt's revolution toppled the previous regime, crowds again demonstrating on Tahrir Square. Do you tell us what's driving all of them to the streets this time around? Well, thanks for having me on. I think there are uh, two answers to that question. There's the obvious one and the subtle one. So the obvious one is what's happening in Egypt right now vis-a-vis Egypt. We have a, a, a understandable anger spilling over into the population about the Presidential Electoral Commission's decision earlier this week to discount 10 of the 23 candidates in the so-called free and democratic elections for the president of Egypt in the upcoming elections. So uh, that has obviously um, uh, angered a lot of people, and I think that 
this is just a, 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 a logical extension of that. But the less, on the less subtle level, we have what's happening in Egypt vis-a-vis the international community. And I think there's a large uh, outside interest in what's happening there right now, uh, specifically which we can locate in uh, Henry Kissinger's comments last year during the uh, the initial part of this uprising when he said that there's a chance for this to, to turn into a type of um, nationalism, a nationalistic movement that would be a uh, secularist in orientation. And he compared that to what was happening uh, under Nasser uh, half a century ago. And of course, he equated Nasserism to terrorism. So I think there's a deep uh, Western interest and an outside interest in seeing uh, that type of uh, nationalism not come to the fore in Egypt right now. And there's a lot of uh, history of, of outside intervention with some of the p- people who are actually organizing and spearheading these protests now, right I mean, now. Just, just aside from the outside intervention that you talk of here, we had a political analyst from Cairo on the program here on RT just a bit earlier. He was saying that uh, people are fed up with, with the ruling military council. They're also fed up with the Muslim Brotherhood that have only been there for a very, very short while, though democratically voted in. Uh, he also said that people would actually, to some degree, rather have an authoritarian form of leadership like what they had with Mubarak because they operate better under such a leadership. Any truth to that, do you think? Well, I'm sure there is truth to that insofar as there are a lot of different opinions on all different sides, as you pointed to earlier. There's a lot of different sects and, 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 and division in those uh, in the ranks right now. And I think that's the important part underlying this, because I think that, that what's really anathema to, to anyone with an interest in seeing a, a type of autocratic uh, government coming into power in Egypt and, and ruling with an iron fist is, is the idea of, of some strong national secularist movement actually gaining ground. And there are a lot of different interests that are involved in making sure that doesn't happen, as there have been for, for many, many years. So, for example, with the Muslim Brotherhood, you can look at, uh, going back to the 1950s, a long history of direct CIA involvement with the Muslim Brotherhood in using uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as a tool of destabilization for national secularist movements. And that policy was formulated uh, quite specifically in, in a May 1979 Bilderberg meeting in Austria, in which Dr. Bernard Lewis basically proposed the use of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as a type of tool of destabilization in those countries. Or you look at the April 6th movement, which is another group that's uh, very much at the forefront of these protests, that on record was in attendance in 2008 in New York at the Alliance of Youth Movements uh, uh, Council, which was directly funded by the U.S. State Department. You had U.S. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, Michael Posner coming out in 2009, or, sorry, 2011, admitting that for the previous two years, the U.S. State Department had been directly funding uh, uh, activists James, James, in various I, countries. I do apologize for cutting in here, because I mean, you do bring in some very, very good, very good angles, but I just for the moment want to stick to the domestic side of things, if I may. I do, I do apologize. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood ha- ha now dominates both houses of Egypt's parliament. They're also in charge of forming the Constitution Draft Committee. Can you tell us that what kind of Egypt are we likely to see with this new balance of power, provided it all carries on and it is actually successful getting through? Well, at the moment, it seems to be teetering between either the continuation of the ruling military junta, and they're obviously trying to assert their authority with the recent uh, decision to to oust uh, many of the presidential candidates, including the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, preferred candidate from the from the elections. Or uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, also quite uh, quite popular. But as you say, there's a lot of uh, discontent with the way that they've been handling things. I think in either event, uh, it, it seems to be a, a more autocratic outcome, which is why there's only a very small sliver. I think of uh, of opportunity, a window of opportunity for the Egyptian people to insert themselves into this and to to make sure that it doesn't go in one of those autocrat- autocratic d- directions. All right, our political analyst uh, James Corbett here on RT. Thanks for joining us on the program. All right, friends.
once again, once again, that was me back on Russia Today in April of 2012, earlier this year, talking about what was happening in Egypt at the time. And, well, things just keep coming round about. And now it's not the military junta that the people are worried about so much as the Muslim Brotherhood, which took over, supposedly, from the military junta and is still having those behind-the-scenes battles with them. And I hope something that came through in that interview, as much as I could possibly squeeze it down into the four or five minutes allotted, was the deep and abiding connections between the Muslim Brotherhood and the U.S. intelligence apparatus, and before that, the British intelligence apparatus that was obviously working in Egypt during British colonial times. And that is absolutely at the heart of this issue of who the Muslim Brotherhood is, how they have come to power, and what their connections still are to this day. There's a lot of those connections that I was mentioning there in that brief RT clip that we're going to draw out at greater length tonight, and I'm going to document it. So once again, of course, the show notes for tonight's episode will be up shortly after tonight's pro- uh, program airs at CorbettReport.com with the links to all of the uh, the documents that I'm going to cite and the, the articles talking about some of these deep connections between the Muslim Brotherhood and American intelligence establishment, which shows that there's a much, much bigger game at play right now, not only in Egypt, but in the region generally. So once again, if we don't know history, we are doomed to repeat it and to fall victim to it over and over again. So let's not be the victims. Let's arm ourselves with knowledge. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back to continue talking about the Muslim Brotherhood. friends welcome back to the program tonight we're going over the muslim brotherhood who is this organization and who is behind them where did they come from and where are they going a question not only of concern for the people of egypt but for the people of the region generally as the muslim brotherhood had its various offshoots in uh, in various different positions so let's start documenting some of this history i've touched on it briefly in that rt clip that we listened to earlier but let's start getting some of this on the table in a documentable form, let's first turn to a spikedonline.com article called "The Truth About the Muslim Brotherhood" from the February from February second, two thousand eleven, talking about the Muslim Brotherhood in the context of what was happening in the Egyptian Revolution as it stood back then, back at the beginning of last year. Well, let's uh, let's just see some of this history that they unfold here, and there are links or not links, but uh, but documentation in this article to some some books so you can go and check this article out for yourself to get those uh those uh, those sources and and to basically check out the information more for yourself but let's read a little bit of this article it says quote founded in egypt in 1928 the muslim brotherhood went on to become the most influential political islamist group in the world its offshoots include hamas in the palestinian territories and many of the Islamic factions from the Afghan-Soviet War of 1979 to 1989, which the Brotherhood played a key role in. From the outset, the Brotherhood, socially conservative and anti-communist, was seen as a potentially useful tool by Western actors keen to keep a check on radical anti-colonialist movements. The immediate precursor to the Brotherhood in the early 1920s was an Islamist-leading organization called the Society of Propaganda and Guidance, which was tacitly supported by the then-British colonialists in Egypt. They considered the society to be a useful counterweight to anti-colonialist groups keen to expel British forces. The society's journal, The Lighthouse, met with British approval with its articles denouncing Egyptian nationalists as atheists and infidels. 
One graduate of the society was Hassan Albana, later founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. From the late 1920s to the early 1950s, Britain and the Muslim Brotherhood had a complex relationship, flitting between hostility and covert working together to achieve shared interests. As Robert Dreyfus points out in Devil's Game, How the United States Helped Unleash Fundamentalist Islam, both the Brotherhood and British intelligence forces were, if for quite different reasons, suspicious of the growing nationalist movement for Egyptian independence. In 1952, Gamal Abdel Nasser took power in Egypt in a military coup that ousted the West's man-on-the-ground, King Farouk. Nasser, who was later president from 1956 to 1970, instituted, instituted a secular republic and later Arab socialism. In the early period of Nasserism, the anti-Nasser Brotherhood continued to be looked upon by elements in the West, first Britain and later the U.S., as a potential reign on Nasser's power and ambitions. In his book Unholy Wars, Afghanistan, America, and International Terrorism, John K. Cooley describes how Washington's foreign policy regime viewed Nasser's Soviet-friendly Egypt as a handmaiden of communism. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, U.S. observers were keen to work with the Muslim Brotherhood, Saudi Arabia, and others in developing an anti-Nasser, anti-Soviet Islamic pact. To this end, the Brotherhood, along with other Islamist groups, started to receive covert, usually modest, American aid when they were engaged against local or Soviet communists. As Cooley says, the fact that Islamist groups such as the Brotherhood were resolutely anti-communist led to America's flirtation with these Muslim groups that had politicized their religion. Washington's focus was, of course, changeable during this period, so during the Suez Crisis of 1956, it temporarily backed Nasser by chastising Britain, France, and Israel for launching a war against Egypt following Nasser's announcement that he would nationalize the Suez Canal. In the late 1950s and the 1960s, Nasser brutally suppressed the Muslim Brotherhood. He banned it, imprisoned thousands of its members, and in 1966 executed its leader, Said, Said Qutb. Yet following the Six-Day War with Israel in 1967, in which the Arab armies, including Egypt, were swiftly hu humiliated, Nasser started to face serious opposition at home from secular leftists and radicals. There was violent street fighting. In response to this challenge to their authority, the rulers of Egypt made amends with the Muslim Brotherhood, with an eye for unleashing the Islamists to take on the secularists. Now that starts to get into the background of what then went on in Egypt after Nasser's assassination and the rise of Sadat, etc., etc. I'm sorry, not Nasser's assassination, Nasser's heart attack. Sadat took over and he started to make amends with the Brotherhood, etc., and the, the implication, what you have to read between the lines there, is that there was a military junta that was, in effect, not ruling behind the scenes, but certainly was overshadowing what was happening there with Nasser and with Sadat and on through Mubarak. There was always the military junta in the background that did have the final say on the, the reins of power there in Egypt ever since the, the revolution. So it has been a, a process for decades of trying to find some middle ground, I suppose, for the average Egyptian between the hardline Islamists and the uh, the Nasser, Nasserists 
etc. But it's interesting to see the Americans and the Brits behind the scenes playing one side off against each other and trying to use the Islamist sects like the Muslim Brotherhood to fight against the Red Menace, the scourge of communism in the domino theory that was dominating Cold War political relations. And it's interesting to see that the Muslim Brotherhood was explicitly supported and aided and covertly worked with by both the Brits and the Americans throughout the 1950s and 60s. More on this connection and what's behind it right after this break. All right, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. Let's continue going on documenting the Muslim Brotherhood and the connections behind them. And just before the break, we were talking about some of the early history of the Brotherhood, how it was founded, and then how it came to a place of prominence in Egyptian society in the uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, as the U.S. and British intelligence worked with them hand-in-hand hand to try to combat Nasserism, which, interestingly enough, if you go back to my Last Word on Terrorism, which is available from the Last Word DVD, if you go back to the Last Word on Terrorism, I had a clip from the beginning of the, the Egyptian revolution that's taking place right now, where uh, our old friend Heinz Kissinger was on, I believe, Bloomberg, saying how we have to be careful that this doesn't get spun off into another type of Nasserism, a type of Arab nationalism, because that's anathema to the globalists, the idea that there could be a secularist, a nationalist Arab state in the region that would actually provide a, a beacon for others to follow. Well, we can't have that. We can't have a free and independent people trying to decide things for themselves. No, we must put in absolute Islamic extremists or communists or whoever will uh, will prevent that from happening and will make sure that the resources get divided up and, uh, and not and squandered away and hopefully go to some aristocracy like what's been set up in Saudi Arabia. And of course, that's all just part of the political power games. And that's exactly why the Americans have had such a close relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood for a long time. And if you were paying close attention in that article we were reading from Spiked Online earlier, you will have noticed some of the names that have become uh, very much a part of the the Al-Qaeda myth, the, uh, the Saeed Qutb, who was uh, obviously influential on a lot of Islamic extremist thinking, and of course also on people like bin Laden and Zawahiri, etc. And of course Zawahiri himself was a member of the Egyptian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM, the so-called 9-11 mastermind from A to Z, uh, was himself also connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, joining at the age of 16. So Although we often talk about the foundation and formation of al-Qaeda in the 1980s uh, under bin Laden and its connections to American intelligence in Afghanistan at that time, it actually goes even further back to even some of the ideological roots of what became al-Qaeda were themselves helped into existence and helped along by American and British intelligence. So this story is a very, very, very big one, and we can keep expanding that out. But let's move things a little bit closer in time. Let's see how things have continued to be relations have continued to be fostered with the Muslim Brotherhood and the American and Western power establishment generally. And let's turn to an article that's a pretty important one, I think, on this regard. It's from conspiracyarchive.com. The article is called Western Intelligence and the Rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. Once again, I will put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode, so you can check that out at CorbettReport.com. But let's read just a section from this where they talk about some of these continuing and ongoing relations between the Brotherhood and the um, power establishment. It says, quote, 
The power elite officially endorsed the Muslim Brotherhood in May of 1979 at the Bilderberg meeting held in Austria. At this meeting, British Islamic expert Dr. Bernard Lewis suggested that endorsing the Muslim Brotherhood would allow the Western elite to, quote, promote balkanization of the entire Muslim Near East along tribal and religious lines. This balkanization process would result in the rise of various autonomous groups and the spreading of chaos in the Near East. In what Lewis termed an arc of crisis, the chaos would eventually spill over into the Muslim regions of the Soviet Union. This would help the Western elites counter Soviet moves to become the world's sole hegemon, thus preserving the Cold War dialectic rivalry that had been so advantageous to the Western oligarchs. The power elite support of the Muslim Brotherhood had begun one year earlier when Carter appointed Bilderberg attendee George Ball to head a White House Iran task force that fell under the authority of National Security Advisors Big New Brzezinski. Ball recommended pulling support for Iran's leader at the time, the Shah of Iran. He also suggested supporting the Shah's opposition, the infamous Ayatollah Khomeini. The Muslim Brotherhood was the movement behind Khomeini. Again, Western intelligence groups lent the Brotherhood an assist. CIA case officer Robert Bowie ran covert operations against the Shah that allowed the coup to be successful. The CIA-led coup used economic pressures placed on Iran by London to create the pretext for religious discontents against the Shah. London refused Iranian oil production, taking only 3 million or so barrels a day on an agreed minimum of 5 million barrels a day. This move imposed revenue pressures on Iran, and agitators trained by U.S. intelligence went about blaming the Shah's regime. End quote. This just gets a bigger and bigger and more complex spider web, but I hope you are at least keeping keeping score here. And for those who are keeping score at home, yes, that means that 1953, the U.S. helped uh, Iran, uh, helped foment a, a coup in Iran over the democratically leaded leader, democratically elected leader Mossadegh, in Operation Ajax. And if you don't know about that operation, please look it up. The CIA helped overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran. And then a couple of decades later, when uh, when uh, when the Shah that they had inst- instituted wasn't quite uh, living up to their their ideas anymore, they decided why why not overthrow him? So they supported him. His, uh, his his opposition, and they brought that to power through a CIA-led coup. And uh, the Khomeini was, was brought into power, and the Iranian Revolution took hold. So once again, Iran was overthrown by a CIA-led coup, and this time it was it, w- with the active support and aid and covert uh, relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. So again, it just keeps getting more and more interesting. And of course, you'll notice that that Bilderberg meeting that this article refers to took place in May of 1979, where Dr. Bernard Lewis was arguing that they should be basically trying to balkanize the uh, the Soviet Muslim states by fostering radical Islam. And he was talking about supporting and endorsing the Muslim Brotherhood. But of course, that also played directly into what happened later that year as the U.S. began its involvement in Afghanistan. And of course, it has now been revealed that, in fact, the uh, the U.S. was in there with Operation Cyclone. Once again, you can look that one up for more details. Operation Cyclone began in 1979, the year before 1980, before the Soviets went into Afghanistan. The, the, the U.S. was already there fomenting uh, discord and basically staging some 
bombings and protests and things to get things underway so that the Soviets would be drawn in. And that was where, of course, the breeding ground for Al-Qaeda eventually happened. So once again, we see direct U.S. intelligence involvement in the region, basically puppeteering it all into action. Let's continue, because again, it goes up not just through the 70s and 80s, but right now to the current day with the current Obama administration. So let's bring things up to date with another article from the ConspiracyArchive.com website by Paul and Philip D. Collins. This article is called Expediting the Grand Jihad, Barack Obama and the Muslim Brotherhood. And I'll just read a quotation from this talking about some of these connections. It says, quote, The connection between the Brotherhood and the power elite is perfectly illustrated by the party's audience with the Bush administration. On June 20th, 2007, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the State Department hosted a meeting with other intelligence community representatives to discuss the opening of more formal channels to the Muslim Brotherhood. One of the Brotherhood supporters at the June 20th meeting was Robert Lakin. Robert Lakin, a scholar at the Nixon Center, was commissioned by the National Intelligence Council to put together a paper on the history of the Muslim Brotherhood earlier in 2007. According to administration officials, Lakin's paper to the National Intelligence Council drew the attention of Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and senior members of the National Security Council. George W. Bush even encouraged Tariq al-Hashemi, the leader of the Iraq branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, to form an alliance to oppose Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. After his election victory, Barack Obama promised that change was on the way. Will that change include an end to Washington's contact with the Muslim Brotherhood? Unfortunately, there's evidence that the Brotherhood will maintain its audience with Washington circles during the Obama reign. When the Obama campaign needed an individual to reach out to the Muslim community, it turned to Chicago lawyer Mazen Azbahi for help. But Azbahi's connections to the Muslim Brotherhood did more to raise questions than it did to bridge gaps. By August of 2008, Azbahi had resigned from his position as volunteer coordinator for Muslim American affairs for the Obama campaign. Azbahi was the Democrats' equivalent of Gop Bush political operative Grover Norquist, meant to court Muslim American voters. And like Norquist, Azbahi had several radical associations that raised eyebrows and set off alarm bells. Eight years before taking up the Obama cause, Azbahi served on the board of the Allied Asset Advisors. Allied Asset Advisors is a subsidiary of the North American Islamic Trust. Uh, According to the 1991 internal memorandum authored by Akram for the Muslim Brotherhood, NAIT, the North American Islamic Trust, is part of the network conducting the Brotherhood's Grand Jihad. NAIT is also connected to the Holy Land Foundation, HLF, an organization believed to be involved in the financing of the Muslim Brotherhood offshoot Hamas. According to the prosecutors in the HLF case, NAIT has an intimate relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. Obama may also connect to the Muslim Brotherhood through his old Chicago mob friends. Anton Tony Rezko, a Syrian-American political fundraiser and Chicago real estate developer, provides the bridge. On June 4, 2008, Rezko was found guilty in federal court on 16 corruption charges. It seems that when Resco wasn't busy helping his friends in the Illinois political scene, such as scandal-embroiled Governor Rod Blagojevich and Obama, he was knee-deep in a kickback scheme that involves taking bribes from companies that desired state contracts. Etc., etc. I don't have time today to really go through all of the connections here between the Obama regime and the Muslim Brotherhood and its various offshoots, including Hamas. 
who of course we see is the great demon that uh, Israel is trying to attack right now or has been in recent weeks. So again, it keeps going back to the same connections, to the same people who are connected to the same power elite that are running in the same circles as they have been for decades, specifically consciously trying to build up these radical Islamist organizations to prevent nationalist Arab secularism from coming to power in places like Egypt. And that's always been the concern for the power elite in in Egypt and what's been happening there for the past year and a half, two years. And that's specifically what Henry Kissinger was warning about all those many months ago. And that's exactly why we see the Muslim Brotherhood once again coming to a position of prominence. Now, let's take a short breather here to just remind ourselves that this does not necessarily mean that every single person connected with the Muslim Brotherhood is in on this and is plotting with the American government. Again, just as most Americans aren't part of the power elite, most um, Egyptians and even most Muslim Brotherhood members aren't part of the Muslim Brotherhood upper reaches of that organization. So let's take a listen to a clip from The Reality Principle, the new podcast from BoilingFrogsPost.com, hosted by Eric Dreitzer, and his recent conversation with Mahdi Darius Nazamroya about the Muslim Brotherhood and how it is being used as a tool, and we should keep that in mind when talking about its members. Um, and I wanted to just also touch on the idea that you brought up as well, the different factions of the Muslim Brotherhood. We, we know that going back as far as the 1950s, there was a faction of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that was in bed with the United States and the Eisenhower administration attempting to destroy Nasser. And so uh, later, as the Muslim Brotherhood developed, many different factions formed, some with certain alliances to Western intelligence, others without. So I think you're absolutely right to make the quality the distinction between these two or three or four different types of Muslim Brotherhood. Excellent. I'm glad that uh, you pointed that out because I, I think that one of the problems we're having now is that people are seeing things black and white, uh, even people who think that they're progressive or say that they're progressive, and, uh, you know, it simplifies matters and we're demonizing people that uh, otherwise don't know any better and, and could potentially, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about Muslim Brotherhood, but I mean, when it comes to these ideological things, uh, we're demonizing a lot of people that could be good people and they could potentially be our, our allies in making a better world. And uh, I'm talking about grassroots. I want to make sure that everybody's clear. I'm not saying make an alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood or anything like that. That, that That's still... That, but I, I, I do find that when it comes to these types of analysis, analyses that people are, you know, they think that everybody who's in the Muslim Brotherhood is bad. Uh, that's not true at all. Like, uh, you know, like I said, Hamas is, a, is essentially the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and there's a lot of people who support the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt who are not bad people. They don't know any better. I don't, I don't agree with them on an ideological scale. And I definitely think that the upper echelons of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt are, are sellouts for sure, and they're 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 uh, they're reenacting what happened before with the Eisenhower administration. Actually, it's great that you mentioned that. I'm really glad. It's really it shows. It's very important that you mentioned that because we we can see how this this uh, this process evolved. Like uh, they deliberately were bringing uh, key individuals from Egypt on trips, to, just like uh, they did a few years ago. They were bringing key individuals from the Muslim Brotherhood on trips. And, or they were bringing their family members on trips to the United States, and there's actually U.S. documents that 
that uh, validate what, what we're both saying about that. And it was a form of uh, controlling them more and being in bed with them more against Gamal Abdel Nasser. So, so I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that because uh, what we are seeing nowadays is not a new gameplay. It's, it's there's nothing original about the things that are happening you now. Mm-hmm. It's it's a repeat of everything that's been happening. It's like a, a continuous cycle. Uh, things are repeating themselves historically, and all we need to do is look back at history in a very critical way, and we can see that the, the same things are happening again. And th- th- that's a shame because because of this historical repeat, we should be able to identify uh, the things that are being done. Once again, that was Mahdi uh, Darius Nazamroya, the political commentator and Middle East expert, talking to Eric Dreitzer on his new podcast, The Reality Principle, which is available from BoilingFrogsPost.com. I hope you are tuning in. Uh, Eric Dreitzer does some great interviews with some really great guests. And there, Mahdi and Eric were talking about the Muslim Brotherhood and how it's not as simple as just a single monolithic organization that all thinks and says and does this things the same way. Of course, it's composed of people who are acting in their own ways. And for the large majority of Egyptian members of the Egyptian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, they are more familiar with the group and its charity work over the years and the ways that it's tried to present itself to the, the general public there in Egypt as an organization which it clearly at the very top, is not. At the very top, it's uh, people like Morsi and others who have traditionally, when we go back and look at the ways that the Brotherhood has intersected with American intelligence, has been very much hand-in-glove with the Western power elite for decades now, basically since its inception. There's been some... some flittering about, as as the Spiked Online article we looked at earlier said, between the, I suppose, love-hate relationship. But at the end of the day, there's been a lot of uh, uh, basically winks and nods and alliances and covert uh, actions together to try to suppress the, the people generally and to do that through supporting radical Islamist groups. Again, if this sounds like we're talking about the same thing that we were talking about with Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and and basically everywhere else, the Wahhabi Sunnists in, uh, that are now invading Syria, etc., again, it is the same game plan. It is the same thing happening over and over. History is repeating, and we are watching it. The question is, are you going to fall for it? Again, assuming you did in the first place, I'm not here to make assumptions. At any rate, let's come back after this break and we'll talk about where things are heading and where things might go from here. Friends, welcome back to the final few minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we've been going over the Muslim Brotherhood and what this organization is really about and what's really been supporting it and making it such a, an important part of Egyptian politics and politics in the region generally for so long. And of course it goes back to the same power elite that have been playing their little Machiavellian games for so long. And unfortunately it is a truism that we are sitting here at our level being fed the 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 checkers game while they're really playing three-dimensional chess which is so far beyond what we uh what we understand the world to be that it's sometimes 
almost inconceivable the types of manipulations and things that are going on behind the scenes. So we have to raise our game a little bit and actually do some of the legwork to look into some of these historical connections. I hope you will actually go and take a look at some of these source documents I've been reading from tonight so you can get a better handle on this situation and the history behind the Muslim Brotherhood. But the question, of course, is where are things going from here? And ultimately, that is up to the people of Egypt to a large extent. They still have the momentum. They still have the the, the real opportunity to continue the revolution, which was absolutely and certainly left unfinished last year when we had all the, uh, the Noam Chomskys and others of the world proclaiming what a wonderful thing had happened in Egypt. And now, of course, they're uh, off concentrating on other areas. Of course, we have to, well, the people of Egypt have to see this through to a completion of some sort. And that completion cannot be in giving Mohamed Morsi the powers that he's now attempting to, to take there in Egypt as a virtual dictator. And I think the long-term solution, of course, is not to turn to constitutional representative democracy, which has worked so well in other places around the world, right? No, of course, it always evolves back into the same spot, which is a small clique at the very top that rule things from connected organizations behind the scenes, because that is the way that power functions. The real the real task in the long run is for humanity as a whole, not the people of Egypt, not the people of the Middle East, but all of humanity to wake up and grow up, take personal responsibility and get rid of the levers of power altogether. But as a committed voluntarist, I am completely against the idea of a state having any power over individuals whatsoever. The state is a mythical construct that we make up in our minds and that we can destroy in our minds at any time by refusing to believe in it and believe in its power and legitimacy and authority. But I am also a realist, and I understand that that's a generational project that's going to take a very, very long time to transition ourselves into. So in the meantime, the very least that we can ask for is that the Egyptians and others don't just sit down and take it when people like Morsi come along, pretending to be able to rule over them with an iron fist. So I hope you're all keeping an eye on what's happening in Egypt right now, even as we speak. It is some very important things that are happening there. And I will be keeping my eye on it as well as we continue documenting what's happening all around the world and trying to keep our eye on all of the balls that are being juggled in world geopolitics right now. And uh, even on top of that, there's also other aspects to what's happening that I think are extremely important. And on that note, later this week, you can look forward to The Unplugged Mom. We're going to have Lorette Lynn on the broadcast on Wednesday night talking about peaceful parenting and how that provides a solution that is completely out of this matrix of political fervor that they want to keep us constantly uh, focused on that may actually be part of that generational project of moving us towards a stateless society. But on that note, I'm going to have to bid you adieu as the time has come and I'm about to turn into a pumpkin. So let's uh, let's bid adieu for tonight and I will be back with you all 23 hours from, from now. Same time, same channel. So until then, thank you all for listening and take care.